This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Howdy, friends. Oh, welcome to episode 57. This is the one where I negotiate with a five-month-old Rottweiler puppy. And you might be thinking to yourself, Jana, he's a dog. Just tell him what to do. And I think that obviously you don't know anything about Rottweiler puppies because it's not that easy. So he's here in the room with us and um, making a hopefully minimal amount of noise, better than the screaming from last week's episode. So this is what I'm saying. It's a negotiation. And I just listened to that back. And as long as he keeps it, as long as I just don't ever stop talking and he doesn't get too crazy, we should be okay as far as sound and volume goes. I suppose we'll see. Anywho, how was everybody's week? How was everybody's time? Uh, mine's been okay. Kind of crazy all over the place. But that's okay. Um, yeah, it's. I feel like episode 57, here we are. It's been cruising right along, you know? Right into it. Um, if you're new or you're not, I'm Jana. I'm your guide. Uh, I'm going to be taking you guys on a trip today. So I started taking my daily vitamins and some health supplements. This has nothing to do with the trip we're going on. But let me just say, I'm feeling excellent, you know? I feel like I've really got my life together. Like, maybe, well, definitely not completely, but I'm definitely pointed in the right direction as far as, like, energy levels and, like, sleep quality go. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling right. I'm feeling, you know, motivated. It's all good. Um, this week particularly has been a weird one. Um, I have a lot going on. Um, and, like, good stuff. And it's not, like, super personal or anything. It's just, it's, it's all hopefully, hello, all hopefully good stuff. Um, at least I hope so. I'm just trying to make some fucking moves, man. You know, making moves. And I hope you're all out there making moves, too. Because I guess... Isn't that what we should all be doing? Not even monetary moves in, in general, just moves. Just keep... Change is good. As much as people don't like change, change is always for the better. Uh, comfort kills. So you don't want to get too comfortable. Okay, hang on. My shirt that I'm currently wearing has these little, um, like, pearl bobbles all down the sides of the sleeves. And Nero has made it his mission to try and bite all of them off individually. He's not been successful yet, but I know that's what he's trying to do um yeah if you follow me on instagram which if you don't you should it's cabernet and true crime uh we were in cleveland this weekend with some friends and that was really nice and i just i feel like between like the health supplements and starting to take care of myself and like hanging out making more time with friends and prioritizing with them has really kind of uh you know filling the cup again and uh this week was kind of disappointing um not disappointing, but gross in general. I uh, found a dead mouse in our pantry. That's super cool. It was rotted and covered in maggots. Also very cool. So now I have a freshly cleaned and organized house as well. So like really all all things are aligning. All things are coming together. It's it's pretty good. And honestly, I meant to do that anyways, but the universe gave me a real alley-oop on the cleaning of my kitchen. But that's fine, you know? Sometimes you got to have the universal push into the stuff that you want to do. So for episode 57, if you recall, as I certainly do, about like 40 episodes ago, I had mentioned that I saw a crime that absolutely fascinated me on one of those like women who kill shows or whatever. I, I don't remember which show it was, but I saw it 
in passing, it was like, that definitely like a woman who killed or something show. I love those shows. Um, hang on. I'm so sorry. He has removed himself. Oh, he, he has removed himself and is now currently on the couch. Okay, we're good. That's, he's still visible, so he can't get into too much trouble. Okay, so like 40 episodes ago, I saw a show, a, a crime on a show that I was like, holy macaroni, that is quite a doozy. However, I did not remember anything about it. And that's vague. I didn't remember uh, the names of anybody or the situation or I didn't really know what it was. And like, I don't, I didn't remember anything, like literally not even the woman's name of the case. But I always said, and I do believe I said it in an actual episode that if I ever figured it out, I was going to cover it in a case because I was, it was interesting and I wanted to know more about it since obviously I think it was, well, now that I know it was one of three um, cases covered in the episode so there really wasn't a lot of time dedicated to it and a lot of the situational aspects of it were not covered because there wasn't that much time so I always said if I could figure out which one it was I would cover it and talk about it here um that's not verbatim obviously because I didn't say all that but that was the gist and guess what I found out. I figured it out. If you can imagine the yelp of delight when I realized what I was reading and I wasn't even looking for it. I found it by complete and pure chance, which just was amazing. It made this week that was already like pretty good even better. So now I, I know um, and I'm going to cover it because I've done all the research. And like... <sighs> I, I get really upset with myself if I can't figure something out, and so I'm really happy that even if it is, like, five years later after me originally talking about it that I figured it out, five years is better than ever. I'll take it. It's a win for me. And today's the day. We're going to talk about it. So I'm always curious if I should do a trigger warning on these, um, just in case there's something particularly upsetting that might occur. Um, at the same time, though, I do realize this is a podcast about true crime, and every aspect of true crime is upsetting and should come with a trigger warning. So I think like the fact that it is a true crime podcast should be its own trigger warning. You ended up here. I don't hide that this is a true crime podcast. I it is called Cabernet and True Crime. So I think like they most people come into it with a sense of understanding that the topics that we talk about might be um, a little touchy for some people. And I get that true crime isn't for everybody. And I understand those people who don't want to listen to it, don't want to talk about it, don't want to do anything with it. I fully understand that. Um, so I'm going to um, just say as kind of a trigger warning that this episode does involve children. And if that's something you don't want to hear, or you can't handle, I once again completely understand that. And it's kind of what the whole episode is about. So if you don't think you can handle that, um, I can't give you a skip ahead warning. I mean, I guess I kind of can, but I'm just going to give you the warning right now that this episode does involve children and I, I don't want to upset anybody in that aspect. So I'm just giving you a fair warning so you can't say I didn't warn you. Alrighty, so with the intro and the warnings out of the way, I think it's time to commence. Susan Diane Eubanks was born on June 26, 1964. And finding out about her childhood and early life was actually very difficult but after reading some court documents, I was able to glean a little information on to who she was and what she went through as a child. So basically, all my information for this episode really kind of had to come from the court documents, and then I supplemented it with some local news articles. 
Uh, there's really not much about this. There's really not much out there. Um, so my research was pretty limited, but I also know that it came, it, it's coming from a trusted source. It's coming from the actual court documents. So it's not like I found some weird article out of the middle of nowhere and, you know, I'm ma making it on that. Like the time I got faked out on an episode and it wasn't even a real crime. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, so... Bup, bup, bup. She was born in San Marcos, California, which is the best I could do. She was at least born in California and in and around that area. I don't know if she was born in San Marcos proper, but it kind of seemed like she lived her whole life there. Um, and that's kind of like by San Diego-ish um, up the coast a bit, though. From the court documents, it seems like Susan didn't have a good childhood. Uh, her mother and stepfather were alcoholics. Um, and they were always on again, off again. Uh, Susan said her mother used to physically abuse her by slapping her and dragging her around by her hair. Susan's mother died in a house fire when she was only eight years old. And from there, Susan said she um, rotated among relatives, including an abusive aunt, another relative, oh, and another relative that managed a hotel. The relative got Susan and her siblings, and I don't know how many there were or what ages of that. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't able to figure that out. Um, but they were forced to clean the hotel rooms. And then on top of that also, she had to sometimes live with her stepfather, who lived in a trailer and would, I guess, get drunk and pee all over himself. So quite the hectic and awful childhood. Sounds like a lot of change. Sounds like a not very stable environment. Sounds like a not, great, not a great place for a child to be raised. But that was the lot that Susan was handed in life. So around 1983, when she is around 19 or so, Susan has a son named Brandon. She's also married to a guy named John Armstrong at some point. I'm not sure about the order of events, um, only that these things happened. And I've kind of got ages to go off of, but um, I'm trying to back calculate a, a timeline of events. So she's 19-ish when she has Brandon, and I don't know if she's married to uh, John before that or after that. Unsure. Somewhere along the way, though, that marriage goes sour and Susan and John get divorced. After her divorce, Susan um, becomes pregnant with her second son, Austin, with a man named Larry, but they break up before the baby's born. And in the court case, we find out why the split happened so suddenly, because I, I guess I kind of think it's crazy that someone would leave their pregnant girlfriend so abruptly. Um, I mean, I obviously understand their circumstances and the reasons. Either, you know, something happened or that person's just a piece of shit. You know, it, it really could be a variety of reasons. But yeah, so I, I actually, I'm happy I stumbled across this information because I would have found it interesting to know why he just kind of up and left his pregnant girlfriend. And so Larry, um, in the court documents, testified that an old girlfriend had contacted him in 1989 while he and Susan were romantically involved with each other and living together. Susan responded by putting a gun to Larry's head and saying she could do whatever she wanted and that she could have killed him, which of course he decided to remove himself from the situation and he waited until Susan went to work and came back for his things and moved out. Susan hunted him down and found out where he was living and drove to his house to confront him and Susan proceeded to try and attack Larry and his female friend but was unsuccessful and then drove off in an angry rage. So there's that. Uh, while pregnant with Austin, Susan meets and marries Eric Eubanks. There is a seven-year age gap between Brandon and Austin. Um, Austin was born in 1990. Eric and Susan have two children of their own. Brigham is born a year after Austin in 1991, and then two years after that in 1993, tiny baby Matthew is born. 
from all accounts, it seems like Eric did the best to raise all three boys as his own. Um, I'm speculating that he even adopted Austin, if not, like, legally, but mentality-wise, because all the articles I've read about this refer to him as the father of all three boys, um, Brandon excluded, but the, the three younger boys are all listed as being Eric's sons. Susan and um, Eric's marriage seemed pretty stable up until Susan experienced a job-related injury. Um, it was a back injury, to my knowledge, um, and it required surgery. She began to abuse prescription medications and alcohol. She lost her job, and she and um, Eric started to begin. They, ooh, they started to begin having problems with each other, and uh, it became a recurring pattern of separation and reconciliation. And while Aaron, Eric, and Susan were on again, off again. Susan was also off again, on again, with a boyfriend named Renee Dodson. Which, from what I remember, the on again, off again with Renee Dodson was, I think it started in 1994. In my head. So, on an unrelated, but kind of related note, Susan was convicted of drunk driving in 1996 after nearly ramming a sheriff's car at 2 a.m., and a blood alcohol test showed that she had more than twice the legal limit of alcohol in her system. Unrelated, kind of related, you'll see. So, flash forward to the fall of 1997. So, in this time, since her surgery and since her injury, it seems like Susan's trying to get her life back together, kind of. Um, She's got a rocky marriage and an unstable relationship, but... um, you know, it seemed like she had been or has been taking courses to become a medical office insurance biller to get back on her feet from her injury. And through all that, though, her friends said that her children were her number one concern and that she did her best she could um, so that she could raise them. And the family pediatrician comes forward as well to say that um, Susan's sons were regularly brought in for checkups and medical problems. And at this point, Brandon is 14, a football player in high school. Austin is seven, Brigham is six, and Matthew is four years old. Uh, While it appeared she was trying, Susan's life is a long shot from perfect. The family lives in a small home a few hundred yards away from the busy California 78, a major traffic artery in San Diego County. The neighbors mentioned that the Eubankses kept to themselves and didn't socialize with anyone, and one neighbor even goes on the record to say there was always trouble up there. In June of 1997, um, a little bit earlier in the story, according to the records, Eric accused Susan of infidelity and threatened to kill her, but suggested that she should just kill herself. He was convicted of a misdemeanor spousal battery charge after a scuffle at the family home. Eric was given probation under the condition that he had to go to domestic violence and alcoholism counseling. He refused to attend AA because he insisted to counselors that he did not have a drinking problem and an arrest warrant was issued for him after he refused to attend the meetings. Around the same time, he was arrested on suspicion of drunk driving. So that's just a smidge ironic. On September 5th, 1997, Susan files for divorce from her second husband. At the time of the separation, Susan and Eric have been living together. Um, From the court documents on the divorce, Susan wrote, I returned to my home after spending the night with a friend and found that my husband had torn up my clothes and written the word divorce in large letters and nail polish on the bathroom mirror. Another document said, my husband called me a whore. He said that I should do everyone a favor and kill myself. He frequently talks about poisoning the food. I am afraid of him. Also, 
My husband grabbed me by the arm and was shaking me violently, wanting to know about my checking account. He also spit in my face. After the restraining order goes into effect, Eric moves out of the home, but Renee Dodson moves in. Around the middle of October, in the midst of all these court battles, Susan bought replacement deadbolts um, locks for her house. She had told someone who knew Dodson that she knew he had broken the lock on the door and that she was buying new ones so he couldn't enter and get his effing stuff. And based off the next comment, I'm assuming it's the store clerk who knew Susan's boyfriend because she said to, quote, warn Dodson that she just purchased bullets at a nearby store and one had his name on it. And in a bizarre display, according to the story, Susan asked, and I'm assuming this is baby Matthew because of everything involved, but she said, mommy did buy the bullets, didn't she? Didn't she? Also, another weird thing to note is that based off the court documents, Eric moved out of the home around the end of September. Renee Dodson moved in, but moved out from October 13th to 19th, where uh, Eric had moved back in. By the 20th, Eric was moved out again, and Renee had moved back into the home. So there's a revolving door of husband and boyfriend going on here in the home. We've got a volatile situation brewing here. Well, it's been volatile, but the pressure is increasing. And at the same time, with all of this going on, Susan's brother had passed away. And I'm, I don't think it happened like in this time frame. I'm not entirely sure when the brother had passed away. But Susan had gained custody of her nephew, who was only five, and he was living in the home as well. So this whole situation is barreling out of control and approaching a pinnacle point, October 26, 1997. In the early afternoon, Susan and Renee go to a bar to watch an L.A. Chargers game. 14-year-old Brandon stayed home to watch his siblings and nephew while they were out. Susan and Renee bought a pitcher of beer to share for the game while they were at the bar, but another couple joins their table. Apparently, Susan didn't want them to sit at their table, apparently because there was a history with them, and from what I've read, and this seems very confusing, but from what I've read, it seems like Susan was talking about Renee behind his back at some point, and the female from the couple had known about that and known Renee and had criticized her for talking about Renee behind his back. And Susan was visibly upset, and Renee suggested they go to a different bar. Renee and Susan left the bar, but Susan was still highly argumentative. She said that Renee had taken the other girl's side, which makes sense to me, because you were talking smack about him behind his back, and I, I guess, I don't know, I don't understand why she was aggressive, or why she was being the aggressive one in this situation, not entirely sure. It, yeah. But either way, removing Susan from the bar seemed like it was a pretty good idea just because if she was going to get into a fight at the bar, it just makes sense to get her out of there, situationally. Um, so Susan begins to slap Renee while he's driving, and instead of going to another bar, because she's obviously still very upset and very argumentative and still in a very combative mood, she's starting to slap him, and Renee says, we're not going to go to another bar, a good idea. And Renee decides to take the two of them home. Say, I'm going to put you to bed. You're being aggressive. You're going to go to bed. And as they're exiting the highway on the off-ramp, Susan notices that they're not going to another bar and they are, in fact, headed home. So she shoves and, like, rams the minivan into park while they're going 30 miles an hour once again on the freeway on off-ramp. So Susan took the keys out of the ignition, so they're just parked on the off-ramp in, you know, by San Diego on a busy road, I would assume. And so they're arguing about the keys, and eventually Renee was able to get them back and drive them home. 
And I bet this whole time you might be suspecting where this story's going. And I'm here to tell you that you're probably wrong. Uh, because if I already didn't know like how the outcome of this case was going to be, I probably wouldn't know where we were heading. And it it's quite confusing and nonsensical. But here we go. So the couple gets home and they continue to argue. Renee says that he wants to leave and go to Hawaii. And Susan slaps him, takes his keys, and keeps him from exiting the bedroom. Um, according to court documents, she also rips the phones out of the wall. No cell phones. Um, eventually, they calm down and have sex. So there's that. Um, weird time and situation to do it. But I mean, whatever gets your rocks off, I guess. Um, afterward, Renee sees an opportunity and he gets the heck out of there. He says he's going to go watch TV in the living room, but when Susan is distracted, he runs to a nearby gas station and calls the sheriff's department asking for an escort so he can get his stuff out of Susan's house. During the tumultuous fight, um, Big Brother Brandon goes to a payphone um, and calls his friend's mother to come get him and his siblings. He told her that he was scared and that he didn't want the little ones to be exposed to the fighting. The mother, whose name was Kathy, tells him to wait on it, reassess the situation, and call her again if he still needs her to pick them up. Uh, not too long after that encounter, Susan herself calls Kathy. She's begging for Kathy to come get the boys because she suspects Renee had called the police, and she said she knew if the police came and knew the children were there that they would be separated from her just because of prior issues at the home. Kathy said that Susan sounded irritated and upset, but definitely not drunk. Also on a weird note, Eric, Susan's estranged, almost ex-husband, had been staying at Kathy's house. It was only a temporary thing until he found another place to live, and I don't think there was anything um, untoward happening in that situation. It sounds like, so I think Brandon and Kathy's son had been friends since elementary school, from what I'd read. And it seems like Kathy was a good friend of the family, and at least knew them, so it seems like that'd be an alright place for Eric to shack up. Um... For the time being, but yeah. So, Kathy had originally agreed to pick the boys up, but ultimately decided not to because she was concerned that if that Brandon wouldn't be allowed over her house anymore to hang out with her son if Susan knew Eric had been staying there. Um, Kathy said she didn't want Susan to think she was taking sides. Um, I've seen another article that says that Kathy didn't pick up the kids because she, quote, didn't have enough seatbelts in her car and that the police were obviously there and she was nervous about what they would think. I personally believe it's the first reason, but that's just my own opinion. Susan, to me, seems like the most dangerous type of person. A real, if you're not with me, you're against me type. And I've said that before. I've said that about myself before. Like, if you're not on my team, like, you're kind of against me. But I don't mean it in the same way that Susan obviously does, right? Like, in my opinion, if you're not on my team, you're kind of not my problem. Like, if you're not in my court backing me up, then I, I'm not here to care or, you know, I, I, I don't know how to word this in a way because like, if you're not with me, you're against me, but not in the dramatic way of that, like teams, you know, either you support me or you don't. And if you support me, I'm going to support you because you're on my team. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, but Susan takes everything incredibly personally, even if it wasn't the intention behind anything. And it's not only the fact that that's the case, that she takes everything incredibly personally, she's also completely unreasonably and violent, like unreasonable and violent about the situation. So it's not even that she's taking it personally, which is a very difficult thing to not do um, since, you know, we are all people and we all have our own opinions and our own thoughts and our own emotions. Taking things personally is very easy to do. 
but you don't you don't physically attack somebody when you I don't know I just <laughs> I just I think that's kind of it's it's extreme it's a very extreme Susan experiences all of her emotions very extremely it seems back to the story sorry so a deputy sheriff picks up Renee from the gas station where he called and they as they approach Susan's house uh, Susan is carrying Renee's tools from his vehicle which has definitely been damaged the truck which based off context clues I think was some type of like work truck maybe but had two flat tires and broken headlights I've also read um, that it had a broken windshield as well of course, the deputy sheriff tells Susan to drop the tools, and she becomes very confrontational, as she does. She says that Renee owed her money and that he'd raped her. The deputy sheriff tells her to go inside, and she listens after he threatens to arrest her. Uh, he oversees Renee getting his tools and what he can back into the patrol car. Susan, at some point, runs back outside to yell, I've been screwed by men my whole life. I've been beaten. I've been raped. As Renee and the deputy sheriff are leaving, and I don't know what the response was to her screaming that, um, if they just left without saying anything, or if they addressed it, but they see Eric parked nearby, um, and, like, I'm guessing he was waiting for them to leave to go see Susan, um, on account of the whole, you know, restraining order thing. Kathy had let him know via pager that Brandon had called and that Susan had too. So he, he just wanted to go check it out and make sure everything was okay. And he's not allowed to be present on the property because Susan has a restraining order against him, even though he'd been living in the house at some point during the restraining order against him. But the cops were there, so you obviously don't want to, like... You preferably don't want to break the law in front of cops. That is probably the dumbest thing to do um, if you're trying to not get caught breaking the law. First up, first, don't do it in front of cops. So, yeah. Uh, somehow, and I really don't understand how this transpired, I would love to be a fly on the wall in this situation. Um, Eric and Renee load Renee's tools into Eric's truck and leave uh, to go to a bar together in Escondido. And that's certainly a plot twist. I, I don't know, where did the cop go? Why did he leave? why why are these two friends now when they weren't beforehand so like there's some questions here and I wasn't able to find the answer so that's kind of where that's at uh but they're together and they go to a bar beautiful so now that everybody's gone Susan's going wild she calls Brandon's grandfather and then calls Brandon's dad who is in Texas and I thought I had mentioned that beforehand but apparently I hadn't Brandon's dad is in Texas um, now, I'm not sure if she went to the payphone and called uh, these people like she had to before or if she fixes the phones in the house now that she's alone. I really don't know if that aspect is important. I'm just saying there's a plot hole in the court documents, but we know she called. So she tells Brandon's dad, John, that the police have been at the house because she slashed Renee's tires, broken his headlights, and put sugar in his gas tank. She called to tell him that she was scared that CPS would come into the situation, um, but apparently also the primary purpose of her calling John was so that he could convince Brandon to lie and cover for her so that the babies would stay in her custody. Uh, Eric returns from the bar sometime around 6 p.m., and upon his arrival, Kathy had just gotten a very weird voicemail from Susan. She plays it for Eric, and all Susan says is, say goodbye. This is compared with Renee telling Eric that Susan was going off the deep end. Apparently during the fight, she had mentioned hurting herself and the boys. 
Around 6.30 p.m., Eric calls the sheriff's department and asks to speak with the sheriff deputy that had been at the house earlier. The two finally get on the phone together around 7 p.m., and based off all the evidence, it's determined that a welfare check needs to be done in the home. So at around 7.30, officers that were the first to arrive, um, they, they really could not be prepared for the scene that they were about to find at the home. In the living room, 14-year-old Brandon was deceased. He had been shot in the head with a 38 caliber handgun at close range. He'd also been shot in the neck from a slight distance. In the children's bedroom, standing no more than a foot away, Susan shot Austin, her seven-year-old, near his left eye. He was in the top bunk. She shot the six-year-old, Brigham, twice in the head, once above his left ear and once close to his right ear. Matthew, who was only four, had been shot in the top of the head down. The two younger boys were found in the bottom bunk. Other shots had been fired in the bedroom, whether before or after the initial slayings, no one can be sure. At some point, she opens the revolver cylinder, throws away the shell casings, and reloads. Susan had gone into her bedroom and turned the gun on herself, shooting herself in the stomach. Susan's six-year-old nephew had been in the home at the time of the shootings. I'm sorry, I thought he was five. Um, but he was left unharmed. Police found him in bed, hiding under the blankets. All of Susan's sons had been shot with the same gun. Austin and Brigham were found to have Xanax in their system, but Brandon and Matthew did not. Five notes were found on the floor in Susan's bedroom. One was to Eric. It said, You betrayed me. You kept a diary, and you, you and Renee Dodson conspired against me. I've lost everyone I've ever loved. Now it's time for you to do the same. She said she could use any money from her... She said he could use any money from her worker's disability case to bury the kids and find your rainbow. Anna May, I'm sure. One was to Renee. She wrote that he was, quote, the biggest liar to date that I know. Stay on crystal meth and let your 37-year-old ass move back with mom and dad. Get back with Pam and or Sherry. They're your class. It concluded with, see ya, ha ha. One was to John Armstrong, Brandon's dad. It said, I know you'll hate me forever, but I can't let Brandon live without his brothers, so I did what I did. She wrote that she had been, quote, strong for 25 years, and I'm tired of all the fight and hurt. She ended the note by complaining that Renee had fucked her all up. One was to her niece, and it said, I know what I'm doing is going to hurt you tremendously, but I have, I can't and have no desire to go on. And the last was to her sister, and it said, she was tired of being strong and that things are way out of hand. She asked that her sister bury her and Matthew in the same casket. Shockingly, uh, Susan and Matthew are still alive when police arrive. Despite their wounds, Matthew was taken to a hospital um, where he would eventually pass away from his wounds. And Susan received emergency treatment. She had lost a lot of blood from her wound in her stomach. But of course, that piece of shit survived. While she was still in the hospital, Susan was arraigned. Um, she was charged with counts of murder, four counts of murder, and she pleaded not guilty. So there's that. Uh, she was refused bail, and a court hearing was scheduled for mid-November, but Susan was unable to talk at the time. She had tubes in her arms and down her throat, so she was writing through notes. The hospital she was at um, was actually one that she worked at for a time. Her former co-workers noted that she was a very needy patient and that at no point in time did she show any remorse or emotion about the slayings themselves. In 1999, two years after the crimes, the trial starts. Susan's defense lawyers did what they could, uh, saying, I mean, what can you do? 
and of course, everything you're about to hear is going to make you mad, but I mean, that is what it is. They're defense lawyers. They're just doing their job. They said that the murders took place while Susan was, quote, blacking out in a state of a diminished mind. They said she wasn't in control of her actions because she had spent the afternoon day drinking and abusing prescription drugs. They said she was, quote, robotic and did what she thought would remove her pain. They tried to say that she couldn't form a conscious intent to murder so that this wasn't a first-degree murder situation, which that strategy is only because you can you can only give the death penalty for first-degree murder. You cannot give the death penalty for anything else. So trying to prove there was no intent and getting the charges dropped to second-degree murder would take the death penalty off the table for good old Susan here. Um, prosecution countered with... It wasn't a blackout because she had to reload her weapon. She and her homestead were already on the police's radar because of the situations in the home, and her sons were killed execution style. She had only shot herself in the stomach. She cannot claim it was a fog, and she didn't know what she was doing. Prosecuting attorneys believe that she shot herself in the stomach to increase the chances of a lesser charge or to possibly try to frame someone else for the murders. Susan also had a blood alcohol content of 0.19%. And she had taken a significant amount of Valium. And in fact, during the home search, police found more than 50 bottles of prescription medication in the home. Also, prosecutors pointed to the suicide notes that she had left. (laughs) Intent was more than proven. In another weird turn of events, during the trial, Eric testified that he still had some, quote, love feelings for Susan. How? I do not know. In August of 1999, the jury retreated to deliberate. They came out two hours later. Susan Eubanks was found guilty of all four counts of first-degree murder, and two days later, they determined that Susan should receive the death penalty, and Susan showed no reaction. A month later, when her official sentencing took place, Susan said she loved her children but felt they would be better off dead. She said she killed her boys as a final act of love in what was an attempted murder-suicide. The judge agreed that she should be put on death row, and she said, Mrs. Eubanks apparently committed these murders in a vicious, calculated attempt to lash out the, at the men in her life as evidenced by her angry, vindictive letters found at the scene. Mrs. Eubanks committed the single most horrific criminal episode in the history of this county. Susan Eubanks, to this day, is still on death row in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, or Chowchilla. On a very sad note, the three younger boys do not have official headstones. They do have a stone marking the grave, but they're not official. Brandon is buried in Texas, close to his father and his family. Uh, the community donated money for the headstones um, for the boys, but back in 19... or Sorry. <laughs> the community donated headstone um, money for the boys back in 1999, but that money is now unaccounted for. Austin, Brigham, and Matthew were buried on November 7th, 1997. And Eric Eubanks owns the grave sites and is apparently the only one who can ask the cemetery to set headstones, but he has never contacted the district, and as I know, the boys' sites have no plans for markers. Um, Eric Eubanks has never spoken publicly about the incident, and he wasn't there for Susan when the verdict was read. And that is Susan Eubanks and the the episode that I had seen on um, Women Who Kill. Actually, I think it was Mothers Who Kill was the title of the episode. I'm not entirely sure. But I don't think they talked about all that in the episode. I would have to go back and rewatch it. Um, I just remembered it was just insane. The, uh, I don't, it's, 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 I'm trying to think of like the way to word this, but it's such a, 
she took her anger out on her children. And I remember seeing something from one of, um, like the criminal experts on the case and the, the, uh, I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on the court documents saying that it's just wild that, yeah, Susan had been abused and Susan had had a rough life and she had been in terrible relationships with the men, but it's just wild that she would take it out on her own children when if the more logical, I guess the more logical thing to do would be to take it out on the men in her life, not her children. Her children were innocent souls, and she even admitted that she loved them. So it's wild that like that was her action to take, and to be so premeditated and to be so determined to do that seems very wild to me. Um, it's definitely not your common outcome of an angry woman. I feel like typically angry women kill in a heat of either... in hot blood in like a, a situation or in cold blood by like poisoning their husband to death I think parasite is such a weird route to go and it's just sad that four kids lost their lives just because their mother was angry at the men she dated it seems like such a waste to me but I don't know. Those are my thoughts on episode 57. Those are my conc- my concluded <laughs> my concluded thoughts. I just this one I like from start to finish is just it's just so sad and it's also unnecessary. Um with that being said, I feel like this one ended up being a little shorter than I wanted it to be, but it kind of is what it is. Um they play out in length and I feel like now I'm just trying to buy time to make it a little bit longer. Uh so um I'll let you go. <laughs> Why am I acting like this is a phone conversation? That's so weird. Um, but yeah, okay. So I'll see you all next week for... Yes, Nero. He's saying it's time for me to end this. I'll catch you all next week. Let me give you all an outro. Sorry.